Well, let's turn this morning to the book of James, chapter 1. And my text is actually verses 13 down through verse 16. Yes, I'm going to cover four verses, Lord willing, this morning uh, from this passage. Let's begin reading by reading just verse 13 down through verse 16. Here James says, writing to these brethren who are scattered, obviously going through much trial and adversity. He says, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Well, James, up to this point in his epistle here, has been skillfully guiding us through the temptations and trials of this life as we do live in a fallen world. The world in which we do live in uh, is not perfect. I hope all of us realize that by now. It, too, reels and has the effects of sin and the disobedience of Adam that has been given to it, as well as ourselves. We're all products of Adam and his transgression. Well, not only are these their sorrows, excuse me, in the, the day and lives of believers, the, there also are the cursed ground, the scripture teaches. There's the thorns, there's the thistles, there's the sweat of our brow, and also there is eventually death, as we saw in the last hour. And also there is sin itself in this life. Sin within... And there are sins without. This is the world, and uh, that's the way it is. This is the way that God has ordained all things. The world is here. There are the allurements of the world. There is the allurements of flesh, and there is the allurements of the devil. And all of these things, brethren, we do face in this life. And so James here has been wisely giving us some counsel, very good counsel, how that we as God's people should take heed, especially in the times of trials and adversities and temptations. And you remember here last week in verse 12, he crowns his advice with a precious promise to those who do do endure temptations. Let's read it, verse 12. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. So we see, even though in the midst of trials and sorrows and adversities, there is still then this idea that if we endure faithfully, if we go through the temptation, we're tried and all those things that James has been discussing, we recognize here that there is a joy and there is a coming reward to be given unto us. And James now then kind of turns the corner here at this point. And he would have us to know something else. He would have us to learn something further in the midst of all this stuff that he's been talking about. So he's going to give us some lessons from verses 13 down through verse 16. So today we've come to school, as it were, to listen to the teacher James to give us some lessons in regards to some, uh, some instances in relationship to temptations themselves. The first lesson is found in verse 13. And it contains two parts. 
So this is a two-part lesson here for my first head. The lesson here is this. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. So what's the first lesson we learn here from James in regards to this issue here? He says, don't dare any of us say that we are tempted, that we are tempted of God. Now, before we get into further uh, into this important lesson, there are some things that we need to note very carefully. When it comes to trials and when it comes to temptations, we may not have all the understanding that we would like to have. In fact, we are sometimes kept in the dark in regards to some of the mysterious workings of God in all of His ways and in this creation. Truly, God has revealed much to us in His Word about how He does govern the universe. For instance... God has made it very plain that He Himself is in control of all things. God has appointed all things. God has decreed all things. These things we can know because by God's grace He's revealed them to us. And by God's grace we can believe them because the Bible speaks of them. For instance, in Psalm 115 and verse 3, the psalmist declares very plainly, Our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever He hath pleased. That's a pretty plain statement. It's hard to miss that, isn't it? That God does whatsoever. That's one of the benefits of being God. If you're God, you can do whatever you want. If you're not God, then obviously you are under authority and you cannot do as you please. But God is under the authority of no man or of no creature. In fact, God is God. And there is none like Him. And He is a God who does in heaven as He pleases. And He does so in earth as He pleases. The book of Ephesians in the New Testament tells us something similar to that. As far as God being the God who does all things. He says, in whom, verse 11 of chapter 1, also we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of Him, that is, the purpose of God, who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. Just as He had to remind Job, I don't go around, Job, and get people's opinions about how to run the creation. I don't bow down and stoop down to the people that I have created in order to find out how to run the universe. Rather, before all of this got into being, I had decreed and purposed everything that comes to pass. In fact, he tells us that he works all things. That is what we see currently going on in Providence. God has worked it all after the counsel of his own will. In fact, uh, Nebuchadnezzar whom we read a little bit about this morning in our scripture reading, had to learn that lesson. Proud Nebuchadnezzar, who did overthrow the nation of Israel, remember, and destroy them and took him captive. He had built uh, the, the marvelous and the great city of Babylon. It was a beautiful place. He had a mighty kingdom. And he steps out one day and says, Wow, look at what I have done. God at that moment then humbles him. He sends him out into the wilderness where he lives for several years. His, uh, his hair, it says, grows like feathers and his fingernails like eagle's claws. And it was there that he learned a lesson of God's sovereignty. 
And he, learned, he said this in uh, Daniel 4. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And here's another lesson he learned. And all the inhabitants of the earth, all of us, are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? That's the God who is the God of the Bible. Now, that may not be your God. Your God may be one who bends to the will of men. But I'm here to tell you this morning, the God of Scripture does according to His own will. Now, that's a given in the understanding of a Christian, that God is God. And He does whatsoever He pleases. Another truism we can learn in the Bible is that God is holy and righteous. And not only that, in all that he decrees, in all that he does, both in heaven and in the earth, he does so as a holy and righteous God. Everything he does is holy, and everything he does is righteous. For instance, in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 14, the scripture says, Therefore hath the Lord watched upon the evil and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works which he doeth. For we obeyed not his voice. Psalm 145 verse 17 says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. Then one last verse. He says, He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity. Just and right is he. Here again, this is something, it may not be true of the God whom you worship, but it is true of the God of this Bible. He is the God who is not only sovereign and does according to all of His will, but He is a God who is holy and who is righteous. The Scripture says He is of such a character, He is so holy, that He cannot even look upon sin. That's the kind of God that is the God of the Bible. Now, the difficulty in all of this then with us is putting all this together in some form and in some fashion and some way that we may understand in some measure and that all that the Bible says about God and who He is and all that we see in creation that takes place, that there are no contradictions and there are no conflicts when we do see these differences in the, word of, uh, in the Bible as well as we see sometimes in creation. Because there does seem to be these contradictions, don't there? We should be humble enough, though, and be believing enough that we should lay our hands upon our mouths and let God be God. And let Him work it all out, sort it all out in His time and His purposes. And when we come to the point at hand this morning, we would do well just to submit to what God has said. Now, in this lesson, Jane would have us to know, first of all, he tells us here, let no man say when he is tempted, 
I am tempted of God. That's lesson number one. Let nobody here who is tempted say, I am tempted of God. Lesson number one. Now, if you're a thinking Christian, and we're not saying this in order to bring up any contradictions, but there seems to be a contradiction here, don't there? Or doesn't there, excuse me. Uh, look over in Genesis 22, and I don't say this in order to tickle the ears of anyone lost here this morning who is trying to find fault with the Word of God. You'll go to hell with that kind of a mentality, and you will burn forever with that mentality. But what I am trying to do this morning is to help the saint who does have a problem with seeing some of these things that we just cannot reconcile in our minds regarding God's Word. Now, James just said, God tempts no man. Do we believe that? Do we think James is correct there? Is there a mistranslation or any other kind of stuff that people would say today in order to find fault with a perfect Bible? Well, no, we believe it to be true. Well, do we believe Genesis 22 and verse 1? Well, I have to say yes. But notice what it says. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Here, behold, here I am. Oh, no. This does seem like a contradiction, doesn't it? It says here in Genesis 22 that God tempted Abraham. James says, I am, uh, when I, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. What do we do with that? Well, in my mind, and this is why I said there may be some who would disagree here, and uh, well then I'll be thankful if you've got it figured out, and I don't, I'll rejoice. But this is the way I understand it, so please listen this morning. First of all, it's very obviously, very obvious, that the Bible does not contradict itself. God's Word cannot be true if there are lies found in it. And a contradiction is a lie. So we have to rule that out immediately, don't we, Christian? I hope you do anyway. So obviously then, the temptation that took place with Abraham is a different kind of temptation that's spoken of here in verse 13. God is not meaning the same thing when he says here in verse 13, I am tempted, so when let no man say he's tempted, I am tempted of God. He means it differently than what was meant there in Genesis 22 verse 1 where he says that God tempted Abraham. Obviously, the temptation here is in a different sense. In fact, we've been reading about temptation beginning there in verse 2, have we not? The temptations spoken in the previous context are temptations that we are to joy in. They are temptations that we are to endure through. They are temptations in which we are to mature in. They are temptations in which in the end issue forth a blessedness and an eternal crown or life itself, eternal life. The temptation of verse 13 is not the same. It is a temptation that will what? Lead, according to verse 15 at the very end, that bringeth forth death. Thus then, these are two different senses of temptation. So that's how we work that out. 
This is the difference. James is simply speaking of a different kind of temptation or a different kind of tempting or trial than what is spoken of earlier in this chapter, as well as in Genesis chapter 22. Here, this temptation in James 13 is spoken of of the issues and regardings to death. And that's quite a contrast, isn't it? Then the temptations that we endure, verse 12, that brings us a crown of life. That's quite a contrast and quite a difference between the temptation in verse 13, which is going to issue up an issue in into death. In fact, the temptations thus far in James are temptations that God Himself, just as in Abraham's case, tempted. God does do that. The second kind of verse 13, God does not. It says He does not. And here's why. So we're away from that point. Now here's why. I hope I've settled it in your thinking. But here's why He cannot tempt us in the sense that verses 13 through 16 is speaking of. It is because, first of all, He tells us, here's the lessons. This is part of the lesson. Let no man say he is tempted. I'm tempted of God. Here's why. For God cannot be tempted with evil. Here is why God cannot tempt us to evil. And by the way, that's another key. The other things weren't temptation unto evil. This is. That's the difference again. Here, God doesn't tempt us with evil. That's the difference between Abraham and this passage here. Abraham was being tried and tested as to, for, to show him his faith. Here is to show us something of our own weakness. And here's why. First of all, God cannot be tempted with evil. You see, there's no evil with God. Remember the passage of Scripture we quoted earlier that God is holy He is holy in all of His works. He's holy in His being. The Bible teaches that in Him is no, in Him is light and in Him is no darkness at all. Hence then there is nothing in God that would cause Him to be tempted to do evil. He can't be tempted with evil. We can't dangle something in front of God as it were and God say, Ooh, I want that. He can't do that. Because there's nothing in God that would attract him to evil. In fact, there is everything in God that would make him abhor and hate and disdain and to turn away from sin and evil. So that's why. Secondly, another reason why we can't say we're tempted of God is because neither tempteth he any man. Tempted any man. Well, we've already saw back in Genesis what he tempted Abraham must be in a different sense then. And it is. This is a temptation with what? Evil and sin. That's the context. Read verses 14 through 15. It's dealing with sin and uh, evil that is sinful. And so God doesn't take that and tempt us with. And so the meaning here is that God tempts no one to sin. Though He tries us, though He gives us temptations, it's not to make us sin. And that's the first lesson He tells us. The first lesson in all of this, brethren, is that you need to remember, we are not tempted 
to do evil by God. Why? Well, God can't be tempted with evil and neither tempted he any man with evil. That's why. The second lesson of the school this morning is this. Is that when we are tempted to do evil, here's where it really comes from. Within us. Lust. The sin in us. Notice verse 14. Here's the contrast. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So here's the second lesson in the school of adversities and trials and temptations. First one is, God doesn't tempt us to sin. The second one is, when we do sin, when we are tempted to sin, that's the context, it's because when we are drawn away of our own lust. The temptation to sin doesn't come from God. The temptation to do evil and to sin comes from our own sinful hearts. That's the problem. The problem isn't God. The problem isn't the circumstances and the trials and the adversities. The problem, brethren, is sin in us. It's our own sinful hearts. See, the Bible teaches and speaks to the point that there dwells in us a law or a principle that we see in Romans 7 that is sin. It is the old man. It is the old nature, indwelling sin that causes us to go after sinful things. In Romans, the seventh chapter, Paul describing something of this work He says, now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law... And he means her like a principle, like the law of gravity. That is, when you drop an apple, which way is it going to go? Up or down? Well, all the apples so far have fallen down, haven't they? There may be some that's going to go up someday, but at this moment, all the apples that have been tested, when they roll off the table, they go to the floor. That, at least here on earth, that's the way it happens. There is the law of gravity in force here. That's one of God's laws. That's what he's saying here. I find in a law, there is this thing within me, it is this principle, and here it is, that when I would do good, evil is present with me. When I obey the law of God, when I do what God commands me, there is still my old nature that sits there beside me and prompts me to do evil. Evil is present with me. Paul goes on, but I delight, or for I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And then uh, Paul speaks of it again in Romans 5 and verse 17. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary 
These are contrary one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. So the Christian has this battle going in within him. And when there is these things in providence that kind of walk by, as it were, there is something that that is within us that makes us want to sin and go after it. Paul calls it, or James calls it here, lust. Something of the evilness of self. Well, where does this sin originate? Well, James says it doesn't come from God. And we can expostulate here, expound here further, that it doesn't come from without either. Where does Jesus say that sin comes from? Where does sin originate? Well, Jesus' words in Matthew, or excuse me, Mark 7, beginning in verse uh, 18, gives us a clue. And he said unto them, Are ye with, so without understanding also? Here the Pharisees had been making fun and saying the disciples had sinned because they didn't wash their hands before they ate. And so Jesus says, it's not that. That's not sinful. That's just a tradition you fellows have dreamed up. And so the disciples are a little bit confused about this. And so they go to the Lord Jesus and ask him about it. And so he gives them the answer. Are ye so without understanding also? Do ye not perceive that whatsoever thing from without entereth into the man, it cannot defile him? Because it entereth not in his heart, but into the belly, and goeth out into the draught, purging all meats. And he said, That which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. From within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evils come from within and defile the man. So, when we're tempted to sin, what's the real cause? Well, many would like to blame God, wouldn't they? Or they'd like to blame their circumstances. They would like to blame the temptations itself. But Jesus says here, and James is teaching us here, that's not the case. The case isn't with the temptation itself. The case is with your own heart. You sin because you want to sin. You sin because there is something within you that leads, tempts, and moves you to sin. And so here's the reason, brethren, why we are tempted to evil. Because of the evil inclination or the evil bent of our hearts. Paul or James here uses the, in the original, the analogy of a hook and a fish. You go fishing, you know what that's like? You drop your... Uh, the line into the water that has a hook and some bait on it. And then the fish swim by and they see that worm wiggling on the, or the little minnow whittle, uh, wiggling on the hook. And so that attracts that fish. And the next thing you know, the fish has got the hook and the fish on, on the hook. And he's snagged. Well, that's the illustration that James is using here. Our hearts are like fish. When the, the bait goes by, we go for it. The problem isn't the bait. The problem's here. Don't blame God. 
Don't blame your circumstances. Don't blame where you're at, how you got there. Blame your heart. That's the true issue of all of this. Your own sin. That's the second lesson. The third lesson this morning is that the birth, this birth, and he uses another analogy now in verse uh, 15, that this birth brings forth sin and death. Notice in verse 14, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So he's using here the idea and the analogy of a birth. And we're all something familiar with that here recently because of the birth of a baby in our midst here. Something of the birth of someone. Well, he uses this in relationship to, to lust and sin. These things, he says, brings forth death. What is truly born out of lust and sin, that deceitfulness of the heart, is death. In fact, it is so deceitful the heart is that we can't know it. That's why you silly, some people who are silly, will spend all this money going to these psychoanalysis to tell you something that they really don't understand themselves. Because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Nobody. In fact, the next verse reveals to us who can truly know the heart, and that's God and God alone. So whoever you're plopping down $75 an hour to listen to your heartbreaks is just fooling you. The point of the matter is, he doesn't know your heart any better than you do. And he probably knows less because he doesn't read his Bible. The Christian, in some measure, does know his heart. And the end of all of this, James says, is death. Notice verse 15. Bringeth forth death. Now think with me on that. We know that to be true, do we not? Sin has brought forth death at the very beginning. Remember with Adam and Eve. Adam was given that covenant in the garden in Genesis chapter 2 there. He says the day you can eat of every tree of the, fruit of the garden, but the tree of the life of, of, of knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat. But Adam, what did he do? Well, from whatever we know, we know that the Scripture says that he partook of the fruit of that and he died. God cursed him. So even from the very beginning it has brought forth death. And it does so even today. And will do so. Adam's sin has brought death and woe to the Christian. Also to all of his children. And let me say just as surely today, lust and sins bring forth death. Don't be fooled this morning. There is something about sin, the Bible says, that it's deceitful. And what it will tell you is, oh, it doesn't bring forth death. It'll bring you happiness. It'll bring you pleasure. It'll bring you riches. It'll bring you glory. And as the devil said, you'll be like God. You see, that's the lie of sin. Paul talks about the deceitfulness of sin in the book of Hebrews. And some of us haven't learned that lesson, have we? There is a deceitfulness about sin. And since our hearts are tainted by sin, so are our hearts deceitful. 
And that's why our conscience, brethren, are not, is not the final authority. God's Word is. Because it is without sin. And then the fourth and final lesson this morning is verse 16. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Do not err. Well, what does he mean here in the context? Well, I think it can fall both ways. It can fall on the things before that's being spoke has been spoken, or it can say what's going to happen afterwards. Both are true. So either way we look at it, we're going to be right here this morning. Do not err in what? In the matter of saying, when I'm tempted, I'm tempted of God. Because the real temptation is in the heart to sin. Don't make the mistake. Don't err in this matter. Don't be so foolish to mistake that you need to blame God for all your sins. Because it's just not true. God tempteth no man. What are some applications in this morning from this? Well, first of all, let's admit, while we may not understand all the ways of God and His providence, but we can rest assured in this. God does not mean evil or sin, as the context here means, for us in our trials. This is why you hear me every other week, perhaps, say to us all that trials are no excuses not to be obedient. You see, that's what the devil, that's what the flesh, and that's what the world tells you. But God doesn't say that. God would have you to know that when you are in the midst of trials and temptations and adversities, you are still under the law to obey. It's just your heart that tells you otherwise. Oh, I'm under a trial. I can't obey. I've got excuse. People will recognize that I'm going through trials and troubles. Surely they'll forgive me. No, my friend, the point of the matter is you sin Because of your sinful heart, not because of the adversities and the trials that you are in. You sin because you want to. Let's put it down to brass tacks here. We sin, I sin, you sin. Because you want to sin. It's my way and not God's way. That's what we're saying. Whether we would ever be so bold as that, that is exactly what we're saying. We are led away by our own lust. Not by God. God is not trying to work sin out in us when, we, when He brings adversities and trials to us. He's working out the other things, patience and, and perfection to us. It is sin that works it out the other way. Which brings me then to number two. The true blame for sin is not God, but the lustful heart of man. But brethren, listen, how easy it is, isn't it, to blame everybody else and everything else but ourselves. Well, it's this. Or it's that brother over there. That's why I sin. Or it's my wife. That's why I sin. Or it's my husband. That's why I sin. It's the circumstances that are in. It's my job. It's my church. Everything except I am the man that made me sin. Oh, we're good at it. We're excellent at thinking up excuses to sin. But the Bible here very plainly tells us that we cannot blame God. And in one sense, we can't even blame the devil. We can't blame our parents. We can't blame the world. The problem is our own sins. That's a hard lesson to learn, isn't it? 
But that's the lesson James puts before us today. Because you know what? No matter whom we blame, whom we lay true blame upon, or whom we lay our blame, our sins upon, it doesn't erase the sin we committed. So you can blame your husband all day. You can blame your wife all day. You can blame your job, your circumstances, even God Himself. But that doesn't remove sin. It won't erase it. Sort of like some of these folks whom we've disciplined in the past, thinking that time erases sin. It doesn't. And it never will. Neither blaming others for our sin will erase it. The thing that has brought sin is my own heart. I'm like the fish out in the pond. The bait goes by and I latch hold on it. And the fault's mine. You see, oh, can't you blame the hook and the, and the guy who put the hook in the water and, and, and baited it with that camouflaged fish? The little minnow? And didn't that... You, no. It's the fish. It's our sinful, wicked appetites that we all possess. And then this brings up a very important factor in true repentance. Listen to me. True repentance issues forth from a heart that blames self rather than others. You have not truly repented if you blame everybody else. Neither have you truly repented if you blame a little self and a lot on others. True repentance says it is me and me alone. Or you have not repented. And God is not satisfied. Not that our repentance brings satisfaction. That's only the blood of Christ. But it's the outworking of it. Remember in the garden where it all started? Eve blamed who? The devil. In reality, she blamed God too. Because who allowed the devil in there? God. She blamed the devil, and, blamed, and Adam blamed the woman, didn't he? And when in reality, he blamed God. The woman, thou gavest me, gave me to eat. So, by Adam there. See, we've shifted the blame ever since. And human nature hasn't changed in 6,000 years. We're still blaming everyone else but ourselves for our sins. Some will be so foolish just to blame the Bible. I'd be sinless if it wasn't for the Bible. Oh, you fool. You really are a fool in God's sight. Repent. Fourthly, Christian, let me ask you this morning. Have you learned these lessons? Or are we learning these lessons? Let me put it this way. I'm sure none of us come to perfection on these things. And how will we know this? How do I know if I'm learned it or I'm learning these lessons? Well, the very thing. Do we blame God and everybody else for our trials and, or for our, our sins and our evils? Or do we own up to them ourselves? If you can honestly and truly say, if I've sinned, it's mine. Then you've learned the lessons that James has put forth. 
keep in these things in remembrance because you will be tested again in these same lessons. You will have to know this lesson over and over and over again until you depart from this life. And then to the sinner, what say you here this morning? Are you going to be so foolish to say, I have no sin, everything's okay? Well, that's your deceitful heart. Or, well, you know, you, you, you Calvinists, you believe God's foreordained everything. Thus, then you really can't blame me. That's what, your, that's what your doctrine logically leads to. It doesn't matter whether you think it does or not. You'll stand before God for your sins. You will be judged not on God's sovereignty, but on God's law and whether you've kept it or not. You will stand before God someday as we mentioned earlier, and give an account. Let me assure you this morning, sin leads to death. When lust is conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And when sin is conceived, it bringeth forth death. The Scripture tells us in Romans chapter 7, or excuse me, 6 and verse 23, For the wages of sin is death. And that's what your sins bring. Be it whoever you are. The wages of sin is death. But there's good news. And that's the gospel. Paul goes on to say, But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin brings eternal death, but the gift of God brings life. What a contrast. Submit, my friend, to the gospel of Christ and have life. Reject it, and you'll bring forth eternal death upon yourself. And woe be unto you, if that be so.